Hello, everyone. Welcome to our show. Um, our special guest on today's episode has requested that I add an addendum. The film that we are covering is 2015's The Martian, directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, our special guest has requested that I mention that at the end of the movie, he misspoke. Uh, one of the characters is not commanding the Ares 6 mission, but the Ares 5 mission. Uh, our guests knew that there are, to quote Apollo 13 and this movie, steely-eyed missile men out there who might spot a slight error and say, um, actually. So we've decided to beat you to the punch. And we certainly hope that you enjoy this episode of Random Trek as we cover The Martian. Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to Movie Night here on Random Trek. I am your faithful captain up here in the capsule, Captain Christopher Ingle, and is always joined by my first officer, Brennan the Mystical Mar. Unfortunately, I left him on Mars. You did, and I will not turn the beat around. <laughs> oh, yes, but I am the dancing queen. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, our, our references are vague, but we are looking at The Martian, 2015's Martian, directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, a movie, as we keep seeing to trading off, I did not see. Uh, so getting to watch it the first time has been really great. But we are joined, uh, of course, by a, a specialist here. Uh, uh, we we had to bring in somebody who's close to home uh, to Commander Mar. Uh, we chose uh, his dad, Chief Petty Officer Jeffrey Mar. He is he is the the uh, Sergey Rajenko to our crew here. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Mar, welcome to our show. Well, thank you so very much. I'm so excited to do this because I've never done this before. It's actually Dad's birthday this month, and since I know how much he loves this movie and the book. I thought, who better to have them or two? The president. So, so we'll, we'll get into it uh, shortly here real quick, because I, I want to hear why you love this movie so much. But I want to share a little bit about my love of of, of this kind of topic here. Um, I, I'm a teacher. I'll always say it. I'm a teacher. Uh, I grew up loving science. Uh, the 90s, the late 90s were huge to me in terms of science. I used to build things about asking, how would you survive on Mars? I really did. Uh, and was a, a part of something also called the Marsville Project, uh, which was a great experience for me as a child. Um, and so part of your plan is, or part of what you have to do is develop ways to survive on Mars. And I'm going to say it, some of the stuff that I saw here, I had ideas for when I was 12. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I love this. The science in this film, for the most part, is so good and spot on. It doesn't feel like science fiction. I felt like I was a scientist sitting here. And for a brief moment, again, it made me go, I want to be an astronaut. I want to do these things again. Um, 
so Jeff, what is it about this movie and this book and this this subject uh, that that captures your imagination? Oh, great question. So when I was a kid, up until I was about 16 years old, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Mm -hmm. And then we were living in uh, Kennewick, Washington. My dad worked out at the Hampered Nuclear Reservation, and we were surrounded by engineers and scientists. Our neighbors on both sides were engineers, and that's when they convinced me that probably being an engineer would be a cool thing to be. And so that's why I'm an electrical engineer. And so obviously this just so tickles all those, you know, everything I, I learned in school, all the physics classes, all the chemistry classes and and so forth. So yeah, th th it's just so pleasing to do that. Now it's, it's a challenge because then you, you nitpick every little thing, <laughs> uh, but and it drives Brennan crazy. Oh. Sorry, Mr. Mystical crazy. Uh, but <laughs> So I'm expressly forbidden to to nitpick the science uh, today. But honestly, there's not a lot to nitpick. Um, mm. I also, um, I love the book uh, as well as the movie. And so uh, I rewatched the movie. We rewatched it yesterday. And I'm, I re am rereading the book now, too, just to refresh my memory. And so, yeah, when I think about the movies that do the science as as right as could be, this one ranks up like Apollo 13, which also tickles so much of that. As mm -hmm. I was watching it, I felt like this was our Apollo 13. Because mm -hmm. the movie Apollo 13 came out right at that time that I was working on Marsville. So like that was fresh in my mind. But as an adult now, I look back like this feels like the next generation of that. Even though it's science fiction, it doesn't feel like fiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely all right so uh as per usual i'll turn the con over to you commander mar all right thank you captain sir so i wanted to start by talking about how we first came to this film so uh as we said this is based on the 2011 novel um the martian by Andy Weir. Uh, clearly somebody who understands science very much so. Um, and I think that somebody a couple of years ago, I think right after the movie came out, I heard someone say, and I agree, that it feels like a movie about a true event. It's just that it hasn't happened yet. But if you didn't know any better, you might think it's like Apollo 13, a recreation of a true story. It's got that element to it. Um, and I think that's what's genius about it. So we'll start, Dad, with you. Um, so you read the book Thirst, correct? Yes. So you would have been part of that original restaurant a fandom that the book gained. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how this movie comes out only four years after the book. It's officially published. Um, there was a frenzy for um, movies about space at the time. Gravity had come out in 2013. It was a big hit. 
Uh, Interstellar had come out in 2014. It was a big hit. But this was kind of riding that wave. And what's interesting about it is, as far as a Ridley Scott film, this is actually fairly upbeat for a Ridley Scott film. Because Ridley Scott movies are usually kind of dour. So we'll get into the screenplay by Drew Goddard in a few minutes. So, Dad, your experience with this film, how did you come to this film? Well, like I said, I came to it after, after the book. I was obviously so excited to um, to, to uh, see the film come out. And of course, naturally, especially first watching, uh, a lot of that is just comparing point by point. And I always love when I hear um, dialogue right from the from the book and the movie. Mm -hmm. And um, and I also love the things, some of the things that they added, which you have to do to make it a movie. Uh, and to make the characters work on screen. Uh, well, we'll talk about that when we get to that. But, uh, you know, by and large, I really like that. But, um, you know, it was just sort of a, a natural that, of course, I would see this movie because yeah. I love the book so much and it was on a topic that I just love so much. Yeah. And uh, interesting that, that Ridley Scott had made Prometheus a few years before this. And Prometheus was... Kind of the mixed bag, and then he made Exodus, Gods and Kings, which is a which is a complete failure, financially and critically. So he was on a bit of a he was on a slope. This movie really brought him back as a director in a big way, and I, and actually all the movies he's made since then have been pretty good. Um, so not only is it a rebound for the director, but also this is a big, you know, a, a moment for uh, of this, in my opinion, is one of the best films of the 2010s. And certainly one of the best space exploration films ever made, and certainly one of my favorites. So I assume that, I believe you and I saw the theater on the same day, I believe. Um, I think so, yeah. Probably, I think it was opening day, I think. And it was really quite an extraordinary experience. And I had not read the book. Um, but I did very much enjoy seeing a, a movie about space exploration that has the science, at least what little science I understand, has enough of it to be like, oh, I like this because it's so creative in terms of the problems have to be solved by science, uh, not by the techno babble that often gets used in Star Trek, but by real techno babble and real mm -hmm. the real nuts and bolts of space travel. So, like uh, Chris, how did you come to this film? You you already mentioned it. I mean, yeah, first of all, you, you suggested it and I hadn't seen it. So that's that. But realistically, watching it, it was a matter of just growing up and loving the sciences and wanting to be an astronaut as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, and so as I was watching this, that really ignited that 
love and that feeling. And as you said, this is rather upbeat for a Ridley Scott film. I'm so used to Ridley Scott and everything bad happening at once. In fact, while watching the film, I kind of kept waiting for the shooter drop somewhere, some major problem, you know, and, and uh, issue. And it never truly really did. But um, I, I just love you know, being able to experience that love of science. And that's something that even as an English teacher, I really want more kids to be aware of is that science can be fun and engaging and challenging. And mm -hmm. you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be by trade a scientist. You don't have to be a teacher or a doctorate. You could just have a passion for wanting to understand how the universe works and mm -hmm. learn more, learn more, ask what if, ask these questions. And these kind of movies are good, I think, for igniting that. And so that's what really turned me for this. Well, and you saw it uh, today. The it was today. Today yeah. was the first time. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and I loved, like I said, I loved it. I never felt it was slow or a problem. I, I, and like I said, I would actually probably show this to my, if I was a science teacher, some of the science in here about Mars, I would show clips from this for life on Mars and what that's like. Uh, there are yep. some things we'll talk about it. Uh, we won't nitpick as 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 Mr. Mars said, but mm -hmm. otherwise, it's so good, so good. I want to know where they filmed this too. That was something that I, I didn't look uh, up. What anyway. what what run in Jordan? Really, made Jordan yeah, look like I mean, Mars? Okay, yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, my word. <laughs> Throw oh, on right. a reddish tint and we got Mars. Yeah. It's great. Oh, yes. As Ridley Scott likes to do. So let's jump into the story. So the, the plot is that astronaut Mark Watney is presumed dead when the crew of the Ares, the Ares 3 mission has to abandon Mars because of a giant storm. Turns out he's alive, and both he and the people on the ground have to science the crap out of Mars to figure out how to rescue him and how to keep him alive. That's the basic plot. So the story is a bit more involved, and it's rather long in terms of going beat by beat. So we're not going to go moment by moment, but basically that Mark Watney, as a botanist, has to figure out how to grow food on Mars to survive. And the people on the ground have to figure out well, how are we going to rescue him if we're not exactly equipped to do that, at least not for like another four years. Um, so it's it's really a movie about scienceing the problem. And as my dad pointed out last night, science is a character in this movie. So let's just talk overall about our feelings on the plot and the story of Martian. So Captain Ingle, we will start with you. It it feels realistic. It, again, it doesn't feel like this is some far out. Uh, science fiction thing this does feel like something that could happen on a mission uh there could are dangers there are risks that happen there are high winds no not necessarily to the level they but but it makes sense to me i'm like okay okay 
Uh, so the plot makes sense. Their motivation in that very beginning when we see him take off and all of that and he's stuck there, like it all adds up to me. I don't I, I buy into it right away. And that that's what sets you off on a good start in this kind of a story is can you buy into the basic plot? And I buy into it 100 percent. This feels like something that could happen. And uh, like and the plot is like the science. Mm -hmm. Mark Watney says at the end of the movie, you deal with one problem, then you deal with another, then you deal with another. And the plot and story or rather the story of this movie is structured in such a way that it's solving problem after problem. Dad, your thoughts on the story of this movie? Yeah, so so it's really interesting that you know the base the basic idea of you know your antagonist is the planet really mm -hmm. and the science is a character uh is i think just makes for a, a great story um it, but you know you just take layer after layer off of this and it's about okay it's about sciencing things it's about not giving up um it's about dealing with being alone for a very very long time it's mm -hmm. about dealing with guilt um, when we talk, when we get to talking about, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, especially his commander, and and it's and about a lot about the inner workings of of, of really how NASA works and the space program works. Um, all of that together just makes a you know a compelling story. Because I was thinking about it earlier. It's like if it were just the technology, if it were just the science, if it were just the planet, and you didn't become invested with the characters. It wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that for me, what's so fascinating about the story is the idea that you are, that you're looking at, well, we'll get to this in a minute, but there is a conflict here. Not just in terms of what needs surviving on a hostile world. But a conflict between Teddy and Vincent and some of the other characters in that is that you have the pragmatic thinking of, oh, we're probably not going to rescue him. You know, you know, looking at the, you know, what's possible, or at least what you think is probable. And the other side of the, the possible, but also dealing with the fact that you're dealing with NASA, which is not not a it, this is it's a public domain, as Teddy points out. And Vincent is basically the one that's like, you know, we need to get this rescued. And Teddy's like, don't look at the how realistic is it to mount another mission and get the money and so there's a lot of conflict about the the how do we do this? You know, is it feasible to do this? Is one man's life worth it? Which is an interesting bit of the story, and um, I think it certainly is worth it. And so I think that as a story, it has so many great dimensions to what is this story really about? Yes, it's about science. Yes, it's about 
the Bible. It's also about what's it like being a human? What What is it when our emotions get involved in these kind of things? Uh, what is it when, you know, emotion meets logic, opposes logic? And then um, Teddy being more obnoxiously logical, as a lot of the others being more driven by their emotions. And I think it's an excellent story. Uh, it's gripping. It's it's very well paced, I'll say. Um, I just watched Ridley Scott's Robin Hood the other day. And the pacing was horrendously bad in that movie. In this movie, it flows so well. Also, it doesn't waste time at the beginning. Within the first five minutes, you've already got the Mark is stranded on Mars. So that right off the bat, it's the hook. If they talk about it in screenwriting, it's the hook. It's the Star Destroyer flying overhead in Star Wars. It's the only that you've got the audience. They are in. And I love that, that, that structure. It's a great story. And like we said, no great story could exist without great characters. Mm -hmm. And this brings us kind of to the heart of the movie is the characters. And there's so many. So we're not going to go through each of them. But there are a few that we will address. But let's begin by talking about the overall ensemble. One thing that Ridley Scott is good at is assembling a great ensemble. Sometimes they're not as well used in some of these movies. In this movie, they are very well used. Um, so, Dad, let's begin with you. Your thoughts on the ensemble of this film? Yeah, so you really you have three sets, if you will, or three groups of people here. You have Watney, you have the crew of the Hermes, and then you have the people at NASA on the ground, as you say. And yet the ensemble actually works between them all, if you will. It's not like it's three distinct groups. I think, you know, really when I think about the feeling of ensemble there, it is really the whole. Um, and the interaction is so good. The, um, I mean, I love, um, I love seeing Sean Bean get a chance to not die in a movie, which is always nice. But That's true. but he and I love him being able to use his real accent in a movie because uh, I love his accent, good mm -hmm. Yorkshire accent. But more importantly, he's as obnoxious as the character in, in the book is. And, you know, he, he just does that so very, very well. Uh, and. One thing I was going to say that really struck me is I've, I, you know, I've read a lot of science fiction, obviously, uh, and a lot of science, science fiction, hard, what's considered hard science fiction. And my opinion is that most hard science fiction authors do not handle female characters well at all. Mm -hmm. And this is a movie that handles female characters very, very well. Oh, yes. They're not all just the same. Uh, they're 
they're competent they're they're not trying to they're not they're not trying to be men they are what they are and you know they're scientists and commanders and and so that that means there's this great balance there in the ensemble and then you also have like you said this this balance between the pragmatic and, and the emotional and and in a lot of cases you have the the ones that you would think be, would be the most pragmatic the most sciencey actually being very 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 driven by emotion which i really liked um so it was and the, and the thing is like like you've pointed out before is is like the characters are believable right mm -hmm. and their interactions are believable that's another thing that is so hard in hard science fiction in my uh, experience is writing believable dialogue and interactions mm. between between characters and these are just i mean there's not an interaction between characters that's not 100 percent believable in this mm -hmm. uh, chris thoughts on the ensemble on this movie it's a perfect blend there was not one character in this film that i mm -hmm. did not like that i did not enjoy going back to um everybody feels their point is reasonable and nobody feels like an obnoxious jerk about it. You know, oftentimes when you have uh, these, these large organizations and groups, you know, we've got to protect the integrity of the agency. We got, you know, and they almost become the bad guy. You almost said, you always said that one military guy. Yeah. Like, we're like, in charge here. I don't feel that way about Jeff Daniels, character. In fact, I no. understand his point. We're mm -hmm. going to die if we do things a certain way. And I know we have to save people, but I have a, a, an agency to think about, you know, mm -hmm. and his point makes total sense. Absolutely does. But he doesn't feel like a jerk in his actions of doing it, you know, and never once does he ultimately choose to put the astronauts or put, uh, uh, put, um, uh, the botanist's uh, life, you know, he's he's weighing the options, and I love that. He's not the shield director from the WandaVision show. I do not feel like I, I, there is no human antagonist in this film. No, <laughs> the protagonist is the sit or the antagonist is the situation. It's Mars. It's being out in space alone. That is your antagonist. That is very well done. That is very clever. And when you have a supporting cast that you can love all the way around, that makes picking out that kind of an antagonist so much easier to do and, and more relatable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, how often have we seen space movies where you have the, um, you know, the, the, the tight one, either military or... Or, or business guy or politician mm -hmm. who's, you know, the clear bad guy. Not in this case. You're right. It's the planet. It's space. It's the the, the danger that everyone signs up for. Right. You know, as, as I think it was Kennedy who said, why climb the highest mountain? Because it's there. You know, it's the idea of of going out on the limb. Wasn't that Hillary? Edmund Hillary? 
<laughs> Uh, 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 oh, I get it. Okay. It took me no, a bit. I, I'm just teasing you. But I agree with you, especially when, when you talk about Kennedy, you know, why do we do it? Not because it's easy, but because it's Yeah. hard, because Mm it's difficult. -hmm. It's those challenges and those questions we want to find. Uh, Yep. and, and these characters make it easy for us to look at those questions. I love that. Yep. Yep. All right. So let's uh talk real quick about some of the specific characters. But really quick before we do, I guess I'll add my two cents. Sometimes when a movie is coming out with a bunch of A-list actors in the cast, I get a little nervous that their talents are going to be wasted. We have seen some movies where they get an A-list cast and it's a disaster. Um... This movie does not waste the talents. And we have a lot of very famous faces. In fact, some of them, just as they were becoming things. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But these were familiar faces. And they're all used extremely well. And in fact, I would say that there, is, there aren't any characters here where I felt that they were poorly used or underused. I mean, certainly there are some words like, I would like to see more of that character. But not in a sense that they we didn't get enough of them. More that we like those characters and we want to see more. Uh, so let's talk about a few, uh, a few specifically. Really stand out. So here's a character that I really like. This is the first time that I had seen her in a movie. Kristen Wiig is Annie Montrose, the communications director. Uh, I thought she was fantastic here. Where Kristen Wiig, who we mostly know as an SNL comedian, getting to play a character that is still allowed to be funny in her own Kristen Wiig kind of way. And I absolutely love her use in this film. And then she's surprisingly the least nerdy of the group. One of my favorite scenes is the Council of Elrond scene. Which she doesn't get it because oddly enough, she's not as big of a nerd as the rest Having of us. Sean, So, have, yeah. I'm sorry, having Sean Bean in that scene Yes. was Yes. the best. <laughs> that, It's that like, was it's some a marvelous marvelous irony. Yeah, brilliant. Um, but Dad, thoughts on Annie Montrose? Well, I was, I mean, the character is written in the book is, is actually the most profane character in the entire book. I'm glad they didn't do that, but she's absolutely believable. And she's also, you understand her motivation. She's the one who's going to have to go face the press. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so, you know, she's one, and it's not like she's one dimensional about that. She's like, you know, if you give me this, if you give me tools to work with here, a picture of Watney, um, if you give me something, then I can, I can make this work. And so, you know, the character was just, just, yeah, just handled really, really well. I can't bring this. He's doing the thorns.
you know, yeah, I mean, I just finished watching uh, The West Wing. One of the major characters is the White House press secretary, C.J. Craig, played by Allison Janney. Mm -hmm. It's a similar character. She's the one who has to go out there and face them. And has to know how to put a spin on things to basically sell it to the world. That's what Annie's doing here. And I think I absolutely love that it's Kristen Wiig in this role. I think Mr. Wig is so um, believable in this role. And this is before, this is when people really knew her as the girl from Bridesmaids. Or the lady from SNL. You know, not, um, and she's still known for Wilson comedy, but this is a role that requires a comedian. Almost. And even though it's a small role, I think she's great. And I'm glad that they cast her in this, get, let, letting her have the chance to be in a movie that is comedic in some way, mm -hmm. but isn't necessarily a straight comedy. Chris, thoughts on Annie Montrose? I love her. Uh, again, it, it, she's not the stereotypical PR person, but she's playing it exactly the way you would expect someone needing to do this job. And I love your comparison to the white to to um, Allison Janney's character because that's how I felt watching this that she's just trying to do her job to make this as positive as we can uh and and i love her too when she gets to be serious i really enjoy it she has a bit part in uh 2017's downsizing ironically enough also with matt damon mm. and i really like her when she gets to be serious um we need more opportunities for her to be serious because uh, I, I love what she has to play with here. And yet, you're right. She does have a little bit of that, a little snarky, little play mm -hmm. kind of thing. But she's doing her job. Uh, and she never it never becomes obnoxious like in Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, when it's straight comedy, doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't. But her playing straight actually can work really well. And this movie proves that. Yes. All right. Next character I'd like to bring up is... Mindy Park, our great sitcom lady, played by Mackenzie Davis in probably one of her first major roles. She's gone on to quite a few things. Since then, she's been in Terminator Dark Fate. She's been in Blade Runner 2049. I particularly wanted to talk about her because I think she's really cute. And anytime you get a good, believable nerd girl, in a movie particularly like this sign me up um you know she just has that look and that feel and she's really instrumental in this film because she's the one who discovers that mark watney's still alive she's also the one who tracks his progress across mars and her role is indispensable and uh, I think that it really is a nice role. It's a smaller role, but I think it's absolutely perfect for what the movie needs. And I think Mackenzie handles it really well. But Dad, thoughts on Mindy Park? Yeah, something I really loved about the character uh, was 
the 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 makeup and hair how they did that to i mean what one thing you just don't like is the is the nerd girl that all you do is take her glasses off and suddenly she's a beauty queen type mm -hmm. of deal that's just, that's you know that that's shallow uh when you look at her you see someone exactly like you'd expect she's still got some skin issues she's trying to have her hair be cool but it looks more more like a rat's nest um and that just makes her character so believable because she i mean she's a very very junior member she's uh you know just starting out her career and it's believable as that and then she's the point being that she is thrown into something way over her head. And like when Teddy says, you know, you have full control of all the satellites around Mars, make this happen. She's like, okay. And, you know, she doesn't know how to make it happen, but she's going to go make it happen. And she did. And so that's, you know, good character. And, but also just, just the, the believable character, which I really liked. Nice thoughts on Mindy Park. I like her. Um, I I enjoyed, you know, she she noticed it. And again, it would have been so easy for for the higher ups to go, nah, you're wrong, you're wrong. No, they listened to her. She showed herself, she stayed calm and cool, uh, you know, adapted as she went through. Uh, I enjoy it. Great team player in this. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like I said, I think Mackenzie Davis is cute. So I get it. But in the proper nerd girl scientist kind of way. Okay, here's another small character that we have to talk about because of where his career has gone. Rich Purnell, played by Childish Gambino. Donald Gother. This is right after he first got on the scene with Community, where he plays a major nerd. Here he is playing this whiz kid uh, at NASA, over at the JTL, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, who is is he at JTL dad is that where he's at mm -hmm. and yeah it's Castro Navigation JPL. Okay. Um, this complete slob college kid type he's an utter genius and of course we've seen where his career has gone Atlanta solo a Star Wars story mm -hmm. playing young Lando and many other things besides uh, this is the first time I'd ever seen him in anything. And I love that he's kind of the whiz kid who figures it all out. And definitely feels like the the absolute genius college kid who is a complete slob. Because, you know, we, we did college kids who are geniuses who make a mess of everything. We've seen that. Um, and Obviously, he's just so much fun to watch in this movie and everything he does. And so I wanted to give a mention to him because Donald Glover, in many ways, is the king of nerds right now. Uh, Chris, thoughts on Rich Purnell? He saved the day. I'm happy uh, he's there. Uh, again, a mathematician saves the day. And I love it. Mm -hmm. Makes me very happy. Um, you know, and you're right. This is very early on in his career. It's interesting, too, when I look, he actually hasn't had a lot of movies. 
Uh, but the movies he has done have been epic. And this is right in the middle of his growth, uh, right before Spider-Man Homecoming and Solo. Mm, yes. Uh, and then, of course, Lion King eventually, which, you know, ironic since we have uh, uh, a G4 in this as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I love him in this. Again, I'm, I have nothing negative to say about any of the characters. They all play their parts and they don't feel overplayed. Nobody feels too good or too evil. Everybody feels human. I think that's the overwhelming thing about this cast is that every cast member feels human. Yeah, and you know what's funny? If if we were to look at all of Ridley Scott's films and say, what do they all have in common? Because they're very different, but they're all about one thing, I think, united in one thing. What does it mean to be human? What is it like being human in terms of we can argue that all art is about what it means to be human, but these movies really deal with with the the facets of being human. And here we have a cast of people who are very different. They represent different elements of humanity. But it's sort of like how do we how do we solve problems as a species? How do we deal with things as a species? I mean, uh, you know, his character definitely represents the the wild intellect of that humans are often capable of. Um, he may be lacking in other areas of his life, but in terms of problem solving. It's good to have him on your side because he knows what he's doing. Yeah, thoughts on Rich Purnell? Yeah, I mean, it was a surprise to see, you know, the, that actor playing the role because when I read the book, it wasn't how I envisioned him. But to your point, I mean, the slobby, I mean, his office looking like a slobby dorm room, mm-hmm. uh, him sleeping on the couch, him utterly dedicated, not going home, never sleeping just utterly fixated on what he does uh, that's like yeah <laughs> you know that's what you would expect to for the person like that to be um and the fact another thing that i think that's important is that instead of the saving the day out of left field type thing mm-hmm. it's his job is to plot the, plot the orbits and mm-hmm. such and and it's a little more complicated than that because the hermes is iron thrusters and constant thrust versus impulse so the math of that is much much more complicated uh, and that's already his job and it and then so you know i i never like seeing it's you know the old uh, you know the kid just comes in and saves the day when they you know they don't have enough background really to save the day he has mm-hmm. the background to save the day Indeed, he does. And of course, Dolan Glover, King of Nerds. This is really exciting to have him be in a movie like this. And the next one, of course, is Tuatel Ejiofor as Vincent Couture. Tuatel has been a full arc of film for the last 20 years. I think the first thing I ever saw him in was Serenity, the movie based on the show Firefly. Um, playing the villain, and um, yeah, so Vincent Kapoor is the director of Mars Missions. 
So he's in a bit of a tug of war with Teddy. Teddy's in charge of NASA. Now Vincent's job is to oversee the Mars missions. So they got a big of a bit of a tug of war going on there. And Chantel Ediator is one of the most reliable actors in Hollywood. If you know he's going to deliver every time he's there. I mean, delivers here. Um, yeah, thoughts on Vincent Kapoor? In a sense, it's a difficult role in the movie because, you know, it. it's... It, he's sort of like in the middle of the storm, if you will. Um, Annie is very specific in her viewpoint and Mitch is very specific in his viewpoint and Teddy very specific in his viewpoint. Whereas he's like the one who's trying to, you know, coordinate between them and such. And to your, it's a hard role because it's not like he's distinctively one thing or another in my, that's just how it came across to me to where, you know, he's the peacemaker. He's the, he's the glue. If you think mm -hmm. about it and you know, and that's an absolute role that's necessary. And he didn't overplay the role because that would have unbalanced the ensemble, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so it took a lot of skill to do that. Chris, thoughts on Chiwetel Ejiofor's Vincent Couture? I really, I really like him. He's got a soft and tender heart and you can see it. It's on the mission. But it's not about his credibility. It's about the one man left behind. And he's got to do something. He feels mm -hmm. driven to do that. Uh, and I really love the presentation of ethics that he deals with and his persistence. Um, and for Chiwetel to be so far down on the, uh, the billing of this, I didn't think he was going to be a major part of this. And yet he, he really is. He's in... Mm -hmm. A good half of the film. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I love it. I absolutely love when when he figures out the Pathfinder thing. You know, genius. Like, I, I love the spark that he gets in here. I, I know exactly where we go, where he's going. I need to get on a plane. He knew where he mm -hmm. was going. He knew what he was doing. I love that about this guy. This is, this is someone who knows what needs to be done and doesn't matter. And I love that eventually... You know, he 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 continues on, and in the credits we see the what is it the Aries Five mission? Is it Aries Five? Aries Six uh, or is it Six? Aries yeah. Five and Six. Yeah, he's working. But he's on. in charge. He he's like full on in charge, and I love that. I absolutely love just seeing him being able to rise above it and to be rewarded for his persistence. You know, this is a guy who didn't give up, and and Chiwetel does such a good job. Indeed, he does. And, you know, Chiwetel Ejiofor is just one of those actors that would always be reliable. Um, you know, I didn't realize it, too, till we went through this. This is a very heavy comic book actor heavy film. That's true. Like a lot of these actors went on to, to play major roles in either the DCEU or the MCU. He was a, he, obviously he's one of them. Uh, or in Matt Damon's case, to show up randomly in Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> Everywhere. Yeah. I'd like that uh, more, please. <laughs> yeah, more there. So our next one, let's do a truth or one uh, to, to go along here. Jessica Chastain is Commander Lewis and Sean Dean as Mitch Henderson. Uh, we have to talk about these two because their story is actually linked. So as the 
uh, pardon me, just coming home. Uh, which for now does some calculations with the realization that if they use the Earth's gravity to propel them, they can get to Mars in a better time frame to rescue more flood. Unfortunately, Teddy vetoes this. But Mitch, not to be deterred, sends an encoded message to the Ares crew with the uh, one of the, the orbital insertion. Is, is that the... Basically with the parameters for how to do what Rich... It's the plan. Has yeah. proposed. And it's up to Commander Lewis. Of course, with the unanimous support of the crew to decide whether or not they're going to commit mutiny and and um and go and rescue their friend and uh this is why their story i think is so much linked because commander lewis is even though she might seem like she's by the book she's military her care for mark watney and her care for a member of her crew that is under her supervision she feels responsible for him and makes the call with the support of the crew to go rescue him. And Mitch, of course, it ends up losing his job because of this. Because uh, Teddy is not very happy with him. But So let's talk really quick about Jessica Chastain and Sean Dean. These are two actors who, of course, I absolutely love. And so I think that Jessica Chastain is a great example of an actress who is very, very beautiful. Also very believable as a military in-charge kind of lady. It does not feel like your stereotypical she's a quote-unquote scientist, but you know, not believable in that role. She is completely believable. In this role, and of course, Sean Dean getting to play a, a character that's quite different than some of the characters that we know him from. He's willing to be do what's right and be obnoxious about it. And I love that he gets to play this kind of curmudgeonly guy who's still a good guy at heart. And he seems perfectly fine with the fact that his job is going to be terminated by this decision because he cares about doing the right thing. Because he's in charge of the the safety and the well-being of the crew. So, Chris, thoughts on Sean Bean and Jessica Chastain? Well, first of all, one does not simply fly back to Mars. Um... Uh-huh. <laughs> Any other Lord of the Rings references I can make today, I'll be proud. Uh, I really like him here. Uh, as as your dad mentioned, it's nice to see him not die. Yes. I love that. Um, and I love Jessica Chastain in this. Excuse me, Oscar winner Jessica Chastain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she carries that gravitas with her. This is a character who we don't see a whole lot of. She leaves him behind for good reason. She leaves him behind for good reason. And she feels guilty about that. But 
we don't really see anything about that or hear anything about it until we see the crew again for the first time. And we see her looking out a window and a brief moment. That's all we need to know. And we can tell mm -hmm. she feels guilty about yes. that decision. That's her acting ability. And that's what she brings into this is, is a gravitas to the situation. And I love when she's presenting the plan to everybody else. She's like, look, here's what you need to know. Uh, we can't do this plan unless everybody agrees to this plan. If one person doesn't, we're not doing this. We're military. We're going to be drummed out, but you guys have never done something like this. Your lives are at risk. The longer we're out here, the more things can go wrong. So, you know, but she lays it out so flat and she, it's like, she's putting her guilt aside and doesn't try to convince them and just tells them the choice has to be yours. These are the options. This is the situation. And I love it. I, I and I also love the end too, that she's the one to go out in the in the uh, uh what is it, the 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 jetpack. She's the one to go in the jetpack and try to go get him. I oh, love yeah. that sense mm -hmm. of redemption, of feeling better. And actually, that whole situation with with uh what felt like a little bit of a rodeo where they were trying to wrap each other up and get, you know. Mm -hmm. I actually, I was very, very enthralled by that. And I buy everything she was selling. Indeed. I did. Thoughts on Sean Bean and Jessica Chastain. Well, let's start with Sean Bean. I mean, Sean Bean's a flight director. Mm -hmm. And all my knowledge about actual NASA flight directors who are all, in, they're all astronauts. And they're all utterly curmudgeonly. Like Gene Krantz um, of Apollo 13. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is. I mean, it's totally that, and and it, and it's you know over and over again, the character is like, this should be the decision of the astronauts, not a decision made by you guys, and and ultimately he, that's exactly that's what happens, and and it's her, I think, because she doesn't overplay, Commander Lewis, that that, I think the gravitas is something that really that's. That's what hit me when I first saw the movie was, yeah, she is like a commander would be. She's not trying, she's not like somebody playing a commander. She's like a commander would be. And I also love, I love the scene where that, where they have to make that unanimous decision where she basically goes through, here's all the places we could die. You need to know this. It's something goes wrong, so, we could die. <laughs> But, but it's also true, and, and I think it's very, very true, um, as was said in the movie, if it were left up to the astronauts, of course they'd go back. Mm -hmm. That they wouldn't give it a second thought. And, and so she's trying very hard to have them at least give it some kind of a second thought. And so that's a very believable scene. So, yeah, and, and she pulls it up. And uh, apparently Jessica Justin did a lot of study for this role. I'm meeting with uh, Tracy Colville Dyson, who's an actual astronaut, who is a commanded missions. Because we know that when Jessica Chastain gets into a role, she throws herself everything into it. Um, and of course, Sean Dean getting to play this curmudgeonly, it's still likable guy who does lose his job. But he's willing to live with that. Uh, so one character we, that we have to talk about just because I, and I know we're taking a long time on the actors, but that's kind of the heart and soul of this movie. Mm -hmm. 
you have to look at that Benedict Wong as we're saying. Benedict, who we all absolutely love, this is before he had just done the Marco Polo show before this. This is before he was in Doctor Strange or in any of those other movies that were narrow course he's famous. But to me, he is hilarious in this movie. And very much the 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 uh, leaguered, that be the word. Mm-hmm. Very much the okay, we gotta get this done. This is gonna be he's the Scotty. He's the Scotty of this story. He's the we have an impossible task to do. And we're gonna do it. And uh, above that he's the guy that's gonna be like, okay, this is how we actually engineer the problem. And of course, he adding that layer of Benedict Long style humor. It's so hilarious because it's so deadpan in a way. It's why he's so funny. And I think that having him here as kind of the also he's like the Q. He's Q of not the Star Trek cube, but the James Bond yes, cube. Mm-hmm. And it's up to his team to come up with these clever solutions. Mm-hmm. And he is fantastic in this movie. I absolutely love him. I love Benedict Wong. Uh, Dan, thoughts on, on Bruce Ng? Yeah. So, the well, as an actor, he's He's wonderful, totally believable in the role, and and the the way the role is played, I like a lot. Because if you look at every major decision point, it's not just him in a room. He's got everybody, you know, all the all the JPL crew is there, mm-hmm. um, including the one guy with the you know the the cue cards, um, yeah, type of a deal. And so it's like, yeah, this is this is how it is, and. He knew that he was committing, you know, them to hell for several months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, did we lose him or? Um, I think your video might be going kind of in and out, but go ahead. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a phone call here, but uh, it'll end here in a second, and I'll be back. There you okay. Go. Yeah, so but him as an actor, yeah, like to your point, I mean, he's he's just, you know, he's become super super famous, but just just so just believable, I guess, of what it comes down to. Yeah, he's got a great line. I, I'm going to need a change of clothes right after they tell him, because <laughs> I think we would all do the same thing in that position. Um, Chris, thoughts on Bruce? Um. But I I love him. Uh, I only see Wong as part of my problem. But mm-hmm. if I look at him, I see Wong a lot. But I I love that in in sciences, the reality is that in space, you need mathematicians. Uh, absolutely, one hundred percent. You know, they're figuring things out. If we can do things, but realistically, it's the engineers that work and make these things happen. And we don't give enough love to engineers. And so I really like uh bruce in this and you know his quest to try to make this work and i really felt bad for him after 
you know, the explosion of the first rocket. Mm, like I, yeah. I felt like he yeah, really was... put everything he had into it and it didn't work. So get him getting to work with his brother. I don't know if it was literally his brother, his metaphorical brother, but uh, his uncle. was it? Oh, his uncle. Okay. Uh, getting to work with Tommy in China, uh, getting to work uh, on it again and get a second shot at it. I, I really love that. And uh, he, he's got an engineer's medal to him and I, I really like him. Indeed. Uh, now, of course, we have to talk about Jeff Daniels as Teddy. And in my opinion, this might be one of Jeff Daniels' best performances as Teddy Sanders. Because when we think of Jeff Daniels, we think of the cuddly guy from Dumb and Dumber or the dad from Fly Away Home or any other number of more cuddly characters. Teddy Sanders is not cuddly. Teddy is a politician in many ways. He's also a realist. But what's interesting about him is he's not a bad guy. He makes completely valid points. But he is definitely, I'm the, I'm the final decision guy. And of course, when he gets circumvented, he certainly doesn't like that. But like any good politician, he basically has the press secretary spin it into a, oh, it was my decision, or we were all behind it. By the idea, oh, there was not a mutiny. It was all part of the decision. And it's like, liar, liar, pants on fire. It's just more of a... Like any politician, he has to cover his tracks. So basically, be like, well, I can't fix it, so I guess we'll just pretend that that was the idea all along. Teddy is a very interesting foil to the other characters. Not a villain, but a foil. And I love that he is such a, you know, he takes these things where things go wrong. Or people go against his wishes, but he spins it into a positive discourse in the, in the, well, it wasn't my decision, but the, the public needs to think that we're all on the same page. So I'll just go with it. Um, so a very interesting role. And as I said, I think Jeff Janos gives one of his best performances here. And I was actually quite surprised that he was not nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this movie. Uh, Dad, thoughts on Teddy? <laughs> Yeah, um, it's in. I think Jeff Daniels was kind of playing Teddy at the right age, the right gravitas mm -hmm. for it. Because I mean, he's basically, um, I mean, think about it, he's one of the older people there. I mean, good, so he's obviously got a lot of years of, of politics behind him, if you will, mm -hmm. and. And he plays it that quite believable. It's um, not likable, really. Mm -hmm. But also, one of the good things I, I like about it is the way the role is written is that he does have reasons and he's able to explain those reasons. The people may not agree with those reasons, 
but it but it's not you know it gives it a a, a third a three dimensionality that's important I think there, um, and but that was a I think the most difficult thing is is to balance the role that for him to be a foil but you not to end up hating him and to have that balance. It's probably the humanity to it. It's probably the trickiest role in the movie, aside from maybe Mark Watney. Because you're right, you have to walk that tightrope of the character. And Jeff Daniels is a master of his craft, as we know. And you're right, he is the right age that his character should be. He's a bit old school in his approach to things. And you're right, he is the guy who plays the politician. Chris, thoughts on Teddy? He could have very easily been a bad guy, and he wasn't. I like it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love his willingness to listen to others, but he makes a firm decision. Um, actually, my favorite moment with him was when Donald Glover was explaining the maneuver, <laughs> and he's just standing there. <laughs> He does not like Donald Glover one bit, and you can tell he listens to him, though. Okay, leave. <laughs> He's yeah, just done out. with him. Uh, but I, I really like him. I, I enjoy him. He is enduring and a very good leader. He makes his point. Yes, he was wrong, but he was right. I, I've said it before. Everything he said was not wrong. He's got the future of the NASA program on his shoulders, and if he does anything wrong, it's his job and potentially the end of the program. Yeah. So yep. I, I love everything about him. And he has to apologize to the president for Mark Watney's uh, profanity-filled tirade. <laughs> Which uh, I wouldn't want to have to make that phone call. No, no. Um, My favorite bit with Teddy is... The, the the project codenamed Elrond. We are talking about this. <laughs> and obviously, most people nowadays know what that means. The council where they decided to destroy the winner. Yep, it's a secret council. I love it. Annie, Annie doesn't know, which is hilarious. I hate you all. That's what she said. But, I hate you all. Yeah, but then Teddy dropped something that only the fans of the books would get. He says, if we're going to be Project Elrond, I want my name to be Glorfindel. So what's great here is is they make a joke that most people can get. And then they drop one that's like, you have to be a serious nerd to understand that. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I saw the movie, I'm like, oh, uh-huh, I see what they did. And I love that. And also the, the fact that Glorfindel is the... Um, Kind of the guy who just comes out of nowhere and saves the day, and and I guess he wanted to be considered that guy. Mm -hmm. But it's a fun reference because it's like, oh, that's a that's a more difficult reference to get. It's okay. Now we got to talk about the guy, the man of the hour. It's Matt Damon as Mark Watney. I think perfect casting. You needed an actor who could basically be a one-man show. Some actors have what it takes. And some, they really need an ensemble. Matt Damon has demonstrated that he could basically do a one-man show on Broadway. 
and he could do it extremely well. So it's giving him those those uh, video journals, which I don't know if he does that in the book or not. He does, uh, but I, but it works really well for film because then you're allowed to basically do do a no no in film. Basically, you're allowed to break the fourth wall, but you're not breaking the fourth wall. You know, nothing's worse than a 1984 Dune voiceover. You know, that would have been bleh. But doing these um, video logs allows you to kind of monologue to the audience. You soliloquize. And mm -hmm. Matt Damon demonstrates that he can do it. And this came out at a very interesting time in his career. He had lost a bit of his star power. This brought him back to the public in a big way. And ever since this movie, I think anytime he shows up in anything, people are happy to see him. Even when he shows up for a split second playing Loki in Thor Ragnarok. Matt Damon is brilliant in this film and was richly deserved of the Academy Award nomination he received. Uh, okay, yeah, thoughts on Mark Watney? Obviously, the, I mean, the central character, so much screen time. Uh, I like your point that given the fact that he's doing so much exposition, it's like, how do I make that work? And, and the fact is, he's talking to the log, he doesn't know who is going to get to watch, you know, the video log, uh, if anybody gets to watch it. And so to me, that makes it easy for me to be in that, oh, I'm the audience. But because, you know, he's talking to everybody, really, mm -hmm. to all of humanity. So I think that really, really worked. And then, then you have to, the other thing is dealing with the psychological effect of being alone, of having hope and then having it dashed, then having hope and having it dashed mm -hmm. as you go through this, being able to to ride those those emotional waves um, believably, um, where there's, you know, there's crying, there's, mm -hmm. I mean, the character Mark Watney, um, as pointed out in the book, deal, deals with stress through humor. Mm-hmm more likely more than any other way and and that's you know that's that's how he does it and then so it captures that really well in the book um but then dealing with you know such intense physical scenes too mm -hmm. that um yeah it just it just really worked because to your point yeah having to carry it for so long so many scenes mm -hmm. it's hard and then Damon demonstrates he can be both hilarious and also be very dramatic, very moving as, a, as an actor. Chris, thoughts on Mark Watney? If this doesn't, if he does not work, this film truly doesn't know Mark, even with everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, you want him to survive. He doesn't feel inept. He doesn't feel overconfident. He's funny. I, there are things that he's doing that I absolutely love. His knocks continuously on Kristen or on uh, uh, Jessica Chastain's music on the disco. I love it. But even the point where he's like, this is the least disco thing. And he's kind of, kind of tapping along with it and just going with it. Like 
He's enjoyable. He never, and, and maybe this is a down to the film. I don't know, but he never truly feels like the end is near. He knows it, but he's never to the point that it's like Tom Hanks, where it's just, I want to die in, in, uh, in Castaway. Oh, he never, point. he never feels point. like that, which I, in the end of the film too, when he is in, um, he's in that classroom and he's, and he was asked, you know, did you feel, you know, did you feel like you were going to die? Yeah. Yeah. And if you go up there and you don't feel that something's wrong, you're going to feel that. So I like the admission of that. I just would have liked to have seen something more that kind of put him to his breaking point. You know, especially I'm thinking of uh, of when um, when uh, uh, the the airlock blew, like that right there. To me, if I was in that situation, all that work that I put in, that would have saw the end of it for me. Yep, I would have felt like there's no hope. And I love that thing he does, where it seems like he's handling it well. He gets in the rubber. He's just about to type something. And he just screams and smashes the desktop. Mm -hmm. Like almost like he's just touched the hot like he just Yeah. It's that delayed reaction mm -hmm. moment. Yeah. And that's a brilliant acting choice in that game. Mm -hmm. All right. So those are our characters. This is a character driven book. So now we go to our next thing, the screenplay. Because this movie required a very deft hand at the screenplay. And Drew Goddard adapted the screenplay from the book. And I think the screenplay is excellent. Now, Drew Goddard is, has an interesting career history. He was a writer on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Alias, and Lost. He doesn't. He had not written a lot of movies up until this point. This is an incredible screenplay because adapting the book is always hard. Now I have not read the book, but I do know, judging by the screenplay, this is an extremely well-written movie, and this is a movie that needed a good script. Because this is a tough job that, that the, the writer has. And the screenplay is really what we have to thank for giving the characters so much to work with and structuring the story in a really good way so that neither does it feel like it's structure is A lot of that, of course, is down to editing. And the edit, thankfully, is very good here. Uh, but the screenplay, I think, is terrific. So, Chris, I'll ask you, thoughts on the screenplay? Perfectly paced, perfectly well done. Um, at first, uh, the, my very first inclination was I wanted a lot more of of Matt Damon on the planet. I mm -hmm. want That's all I wanted. But it, I quickly changed my mind about that because I loved the thought process that was going on with everyone else back home part. And again, I compared to Apollo 13, part of what made Apollo 13 work wasn't just the relationship with the astronauts with each other, but also what were we doing at home at that time? 
what were the other what was going on around the world what were people doing to save them so i love that inclusion here i love that decision to have that that featured when it could have very easily been the other way this could have been cast away in space yeah and it or, didn't become that or not enough screen time with the people on earth kind of thing right yeah so you read the book so two questions. What do you think about the screenplay overall? And how well do you think the screenplay adapted the book? Great questions. Um, I think the screenplay is very good. I think the biggest, one of the biggest challenges is figuring out what to leave out. Uh, because, yeah. because I mentioned yesterday, it would be, you know, at least a four hour movie to put, you know, all, all the things that went wrong, just that part in. Yeah. Um, if not longer and so it couldn't be um it just wouldn't wouldn't work um i think the other thing is how it having to translate into a visual medium and and figuring out what works and what doesn't work in that uh, mm -hmm. i really appreciate that the screenplay pres screenplay preserves a lot of the dialogue from the book not all of it, but, you know, maybe only 25% of it, but still, you know, you, you see that. And so you you feel, at least I feel a connectedness between the two, but then I also love some of the additions that they made mm -hmm. too. Um, so, because, because, you know, you, we know it just can't be a rote, you know, just write it all as just, you know, take the book and write it in screenplay format. That just mm -hmm. doesn't work. So, yeah, the part that threw me that I had to get used to was was, uh, was kind of when they when they deal with the whole montage thing at the end to sort of, uh, you know, about 20 percent of the book is, is about his journey from um, the Hab to Schiaparelli Crater. And, you know, all of that is handled in about, what, a 20 second montage, um, because I mean, that's the way they, they got around chopping a whole lot out um, and to keep the pacing work. And so I had to get used to to that because there was some really cool stuff that happened there. But, you know, thinking about it, it's like, yeah, but it, it was too much if you to leave it all in. Yeah. Um, you know, I love that scene. But, you know, and I know that I, I probably will probably read the book eventually. And I know there's a lot of fascinating stuff in there. You told me a little bit about it last night, Dad. Um, I love the way they do that scene. The music and visuals and just that quiet, you know, silent track across Mars. And the people doing stuff on Earth, you know, it's brilliant. Because, yeah, sometimes you have to do that when you adapt to book. And but I guess the biggest question is, can you fill that moment with a scene that still works and and doesn't feel like you're just trying to pass the time? And that scene is fantastic. So now we come to something big, the themes of the movie. And because you know there's so much science that we could talk about. I guess really quickly we'll address that the, really the theme here, at least I think, is 
sciencing the craft out of the situation is human ingenuity is really what's what's on display here. This isn't a deep movie in terms of like deep Christopher Nolan-esque mind-bending kind of depth about the universe. But it is deep about what how far humans can go when it comes to solving a problem. And I mean, you look at Apollo 13, the fact that they ever got home is one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest achievements in human ingenuity we've ever had. Because the chance of them getting back home was, you know, one in a million, maybe one in a billion, and yet they did it. So to me, the theme here is really about science and ingenuity. Uh, Dad, what are your thoughts on the themes of this movie? Particularly the science. Well, I actually think the main theme here is about what is what is what are we willing to do to save a life? Mm, good point. Um, that that's at least the theme on Earth. I mean, the theme with Watney there on Mars is science and overcoming adversity. Um, but the scene on Earth is about what is the what is the the worth of a life, mm. and you know we Apollo thirteen it was a little simple there was never a question if you will they would do anything this this is a little more complicated situation so where there that worked because there needed to be different choices and different options and ways that people could could have gone um to give it you know that tension that it needed um but to me that 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 that's what really comes to me is what are we willing to do um uh, and and it's interesting because when we talk about you know risking you know six five the five other astronauts versus Watney um do we get the five safely home and call it good for the day or do we risk them to get one more home? And that's what people do all the time. You know, when people go out and do search and rescue, water yeah. rescues and such, they're risking multiple lives to save one. Because yeah. that's a, that's how we're wired. Which is a theme that Star Trek dealt with on multiple occasions. Which is definitely one of the reasons why I think we chose this movie. Because if you look at Star Trek 2 and 3, in Star Trek 2, Spock says the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. Mm -hmm. In Star Trek 3, they say, well, the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Both can be true. And I think that this movie demonstrates that. And before we, before I ask Captain Eagle his thoughts, I just have to ask, as keeping on this theme of science, Dad, your thoughts on just how the science is handled. Ah, that's not always an interesting keeping question. Keeping it brief. <laughs> yeah, keeping it brief. Uh, overall, really good. I mean, certainly the orbital dynamics aspect of it. Um, the, the planet, you know, pretty well. The chemistry, pretty well. Uh, it's interesting that... Uh, you know, there are a few things where you do have to, getting back to something that our, 
you know, our, our captain told us early on, I mean, you, are you invested at the start? Because, um, I mean, if you, you, you may realize that, no, dust storms on Mars can't do that. You know, the, the, you know, with because the atmosphere is only 1% as thick as Earth's and there's not going to be that much force. Uh, but on the other hand, it's like, okay, uh, that's not really the point. And that was hard for me to get around a little bit because you know me, I like to pick the science apart and go, okay, so the point is you needed a situation and, and we, you could have done that situation in a many, many different ways. You know, there could have been a meteor strike. There could have been um, the ground starting to su subside underneath the map. You know, there's so many ways you could have created the situation. Uh, but all you needed was, you know, it, it's like I need to push that first domino to start this whole thing. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, the science, like, you know, it's like 90% right. And so there's a... And which, compared to and, most light light films, that's actually pretty good. That's way above where most are. Yeah. Um, Captain Ingle, thoughts on the themes of the movie? I, I, I think the main theme for me mostly was this the importance of human life and what we will do to preserve it whether we are the ones trying to protect ourselves and or whether we're dealing with others and you know will will we do something if we see something wrong will we go back and fix it um and i love the parallels to star trek 2 and 3 because it is a lot like that where where um matt damon's character very much was the spock like where he was like hey they had to go i understand why they did I don't blame them. I don't blame them. And he never did. And he absolutely made sense. And yet you had the commander uh, and the crew very much like the crew of the Enterprise saying, no, we need to get Spock. We need to, you know, so it makes sense. I, I, I totally buy that. And the science is important, but more than that, it's what we do with it. Can we do it to... um increase our knowledge and the things that we have learned in our existence on this on this planet as very brief as it is and we do that's what it is we discover what we are not during our successes but during our failures we learned so much from the apollo 13 missions we learned so much from challenger our disasters and our tragedies become our biggest learning tools and so this movie shows that very good point. That's excellently said. Now we come to one thing that we'll talk about. Real, the last two things we'll discuss very briefly. The music. The musical scores by Harry Gregson Williams. Wonderful music, Mars music that creates this otherworldly atmosphere. And then, of course, the soundtrack. Disco. Great use of disco. Um, uh, so let's just briefly just thoughts on the soundtrack both the score and the music yeah. oh the I well particularly the soundtrack uh, was really you know it, it just really really worked for me and something that I think they did in the movie because uh, they could that they didn't in the didn't that anywhere didn't really in the book was was that uh, some of those disco songs were 
the right song because he's playing them because they're marking a milestone in the film. So it's Watney is playing them to us and it's underscoring part of what's going on right then. And I thought that was super, super masterful. Like I will survive those, you know, finding, finding just the right disco song um, for that. Uh, in the book, I think he does uses staying alive, which also works, but um uh, the um but it was you know it just it just really worked plus it was a wonderful comedic foil <laughs> the whole the whole disco thing oh, and to be clear though i will survive place during the end credits mm -hmm. um the but i do love the use of Starman and waterloo and mm -hmm. oh that's right they play waterloo when he gets to the to the aries four math because you know the against greatest defeat um Chris, thoughts on the score and the soundtrack? Uh, I I love the score. It, it especially to the night shots when the score would play. Oh yeah. Oh, I love that. And those night shots were beautiful. Again, don't know how accurate they were. I don't care. I would expect a night on Mars would just be amazing to look up and just see what's out there. That would be awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, but the disco. Interestingly enough, I got the joke at the first. I mean, it's a joke up front, but every disco song fits the moment. It fits, you know, the theme of the moment. Don't rock the boat. You know, you just got to survive. Mm -hmm. You got to make it. You know, uh, Starman. Uh, I I love that they're. I think they're playing Starman when uh, uh the Hermes craft uh is is going back. I remember seeing Starman at that point. Um turn the beat around I, I all of these songs hot stuff fun 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 and that's, that's another thing they're all upbeat there is no downbeat disco song in here at all it's all positive it's all energetic it's hopeful and that's what he needed that's what this is about is being hopeful and it's uh, definitely the kind of music that astronauts would really play in real life there's truth to that, absolutely. So then we come to our last thing. We'll just talk about it real quick. Is the spectacle? Like all Ridley Scott films, this movie looks amazing. And thankfully, the editing is such that we get these great shots, these great panoramic views of Mars, and the visual effects are extraordinary. The just the look of Mars filmed at Woody Run the Jordan. With this orange tint, I mean, oh my gosh, simply beautiful. Um, so as we sort of get toward the end, quick thoughts on the spectacle of the movie, Chris. Uh, this was just so much fun to look at and to watch, and just all the details that go into it make that spectacle bigger. Uh, the the accuracies, the attention to science, the visuals, the music, everything together makes this an epic. You know, and you are wondering as you're going, is he going to make it back? Is he going to make it back? Is this going to be a failure? Because uh, let's face it, if if like for example, Gladiator is any indicator, our main character died. <laughs> he died in the film. Spoiler so I was sitting there and. 20... 23-year-old movie. Yeah, spoilers. Spoilers for, for a 23-year-old <laughs> movie. But my point is, I sat there hoping he didn't die. Would this be the end? You know, and it kept us going with that. And the, this spectacle gives into all of that. And I love it. Awesome. Dad, thoughts on the spectacle? 
Well, I like the big. There's the big spectacle, but there's also some of the small spectacle. The one, the scene that in rewatching it that really struck me was when he's modifying the rover for the journey to Scaparelli. Mm -hmm. They're the edit. They're constantly going back. He's. They're showing what they're doing on Earth, where they're modifying the one they have there, and then to him doing the same modification, falling through, you know, falling through the roof, falling through the roof, the one on Earth, on here. It's just, and the, you know, it's that attention to that sort of a detail really strike, you know, things like, oh, yeah, they model everything on, you know, on models on Earth, on life-size models on earth of that he's going to do there when they're in contact so i you know i like that part of it too uh, i do think that the i mean like the design of the hab the design of the rovers all of that's i mean really beautiful uh but just yeah these grand sweeping deserts that that's just amazing yeah and it is an extraordinary looking film that really captures what it's like to be in you know, space travel. So that sort of brings us to the end of a truly incredible movie. And Chris, I think you put your 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 finger on it. This is a movie where pretty much everything about it is amazing. It is it really all just everything in it adds to make this amazing so as we come to the end final thoughts uh, I'll get mine and then I'll and then I'll get it to you Captain and then we can end with our guest this is one of my favorite movies of all time I would argue this is one of the best films of the 2010s uh, maybe one of the best of the 21st century and certainly one of the best science fiction quote unquote films uh, that I can think of. And it's just I never get tired of watching it. It's And it's so much to pick up on each time. Uh, so, Captain Engel, your final thoughts? Uh, this was a pleasure. It was a treat. Uh, I enjoyed it. It did. It's a long movie, and I didn't feel it was long. <laughs> I yeah. enjoy it going through it. Um, I would use this again if I was a science teacher. I would love this showing the life on Mars. I'd love to use this. Uh, I think this is this is not a science fiction film. This is a fictional film about science. Yep. Dead final thoughts. I think it's so ironic. Uh, Andy Weir's third novel, Project Hail Mary, I hope becomes a film, and I hope we can have this same talk because. The protagonist in that film is a science teacher. And so, it, you know, it's just an interesting irony. And, but also it's about sciencing your way through problem after problem after problem. So I'm hoping we get that chance because this, this worked so well. Um, it's good material to begin with, but then like, just like we went through all of it, getting the right cast, the right screenplay, the right editing, the right set design, right art direction, all of that, um, and then just the right performances. I mean, it really comes it came together just awesome. And a great director to boot. So, 
he's definitely a director who benefits from good collaboration. And that's exactly what he got here. So those are our thoughts. On the Martian, Captain Ingle, the time is yours. Thank you. Uh, and of course, I want to thank uh, uh, Jeff Marr for joining us today. Uh, uh, this has been really a pleasure. And I know part of the reason we watched this is because you liked it. And I'm just really glad that I got to, again, see a film that normally I probably wouldn't have had the time to get to watch. And I'm so glad that I did. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you for 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 kind of inspiring this and being with us to talk about it today. You're very welcome. <laughs> All right, Brennan. Uh, so uh, we don't know what our movie next month is. You know, we were discussing classics, uh, and I think maybe we could decide it right here. Um, let's 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 decide. Do we want to do the day the Earth stood still, or or what was the other one we were talking about? Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet. Which do we do next month? I'm I'm voting for Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet. It is. Yes. So next month in February, or no. Wait, yeah, February. <laughs> for Valentine's Day, Forbidden Planet, <laughs> which has a lot of connections in Star Trek, especially Enterprise. Enterprise likes to play with Forbidden Planet a lot. It does, indeed. It does. So we will go back there. Uh, uh, Brennan, where can the people find you? Uh, the usual places. You can find this podcast, Random Trek, under the umbrella page, Journey State We're Not, on YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find me on Twitch and Twitter at Ingle 1984 And as always, we end every episode. Kapla! And live long and prosper. Peace and long life.